0: University. University
1: Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I am CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Lynn Cullen about the woman with the cure. One of the great medical success stories of the 20th century was the near eradication of polio, the scourge once known as infantile paralysis, because unlike the ongoing COVID pandemic, It targeted young children, although not exclusively. But like COVID, it emerged quickly, spread rapidly, and caused a great deal of fear, because there was no cure. A wife, 1940. Eileen would never get over the empty swimming pools. It was July 1. The water should have been frothing with kids. A lifeguard should have been twirling his whistle up on his white wooden throne. Moms should have been unpacking egg salad sandwiches wrapped in wax paper and Kool-Aid in a thermos. And whisking grit from the concrete skirting from their toddlers' saggy diapers. Now the pool gaped open like a gum just relieved of a baby tooth, its only visitor, a short haired black dog, eating a candy wrapper. Their dresses already damp with sweat, Arline's little girls, ages two and a half and four, were trying to mount the seat back to invade the front. She blocked them with her arm as she read a sign nailed to a telephone pole Danger, infantile paralysis, polio. Beach closed by order of the Nashville Municipal Health Department. No swimming allowed. Girls, it's closed. Get back. She didn't think it would be open. It hadn't been most of the summer. She'd only paused here on the way to taking her husband lunch at the hospital so they'd see for themselves and would stop begging her to go swimming. Arline drove on through the wooded park, past empty swings, past a motionless merry go round, past teeter totters frozen at a tilt. Soon they were in a neighborhood of white frame houses, where aproned women hung clothes in their yards, cats sat on side porches next to the milkman's wire basket, and men pushed mowers over their lawns. There were no children anywhere, a Norman Rockwell picture with the kids painted out. She remembered reading in the paper a few years back of towns hit with polio being quarantined like plague villages in the Middle Ages. She had been horrified to learn a policeman stationed at roadblocks at the edge of town sealing the polio victims in and the healthy out. They didn't do that now. You could travel around in the summer all you wanted, as long as you didn't mind being terrified for your kids. The kids scuffled in the back seat as she waited at a stoplight. Through her idle thoughts paraded Mikey Brown clanking into church in leg braces, a little girl being wheeled into Kroger by her staunchly smiling mother, one of Barry's little patients in an iron lung, watching Arlene from the mirror angled over the contraption. But for the grace of God, go her girls. And now, please join me in welcoming Lynn Cullen. Hello, Lynn. Thank you for talking with me today. Hello, Carolyn. Great to be here. Thank you. By my count, you've written six novels, with subjects reigning from Queen Juana the Mad of Castile to the wife of Edgar Allan Poe. What got you started writing fiction, and how do you pick the subjects of your novels?
0: Oh, I writing fiction is really the only thing I can do. I've I've known that I've wanted to be a writer since I was old enough to think about what one does. And I've just always been working toward that my whole life. And I feel lucky to be able to oh, live my dream. Um, and as far as how I find my books, they actually find me. Um, I like, for example, um. For Mrs. Poe, I uh, it was it actually came at a time really bad time in my life. Um, it was during the Great Recession, and my my husband was out of work, and I had just lost my book contracts. And he came down with meningitis, and he had this terrible brain injury uh, from it. And um, I, we came home from the hospital, and I was thinking, how are we going to survive? How what what can I write? What can I write to to save us, and Poe popped in my head, and frankly, I wasn't even a, a big Poe fan. I just, you know, had read him in high school, or that was about it. And you know, I just had this loud clanging in my head, like Poe, oh, Poe, and I followed up on that, and of course, that that book changed my life. But um, it was sort of similar for this book. I was walking with a friend. Um, Karen Torgaley is her name. She's actually a Sabin biographer. She has a book on Sabin coming out next year. But uh, at the time, she was um, an oral historian for the CDC. And she was telling me about all these um, pioneers in epidemiology and in medicine. And she was telling me about Salk and Sabin, you know, Albert Sabin and Jonas Salk and how they were racing to find the polio vaccine. And that made a bell clang. But even as it clanged, I thought, I want to write that, but what about the women? You know, you always hear about those two. When the first I'd heard of Southkins Hapen. And I thought, but what about the women? And sure enough, as I dug into it, women made huge contributions uh, to the polio um, beating polio it, it was just amazing what major contributions they made and still we've never heard of them
1: yes i uh, like most of our listeners uh until i read your novel i associated the polio vaccine exclusively with uh, jonah sock and albert sabrin and i had never heard of dorothy hurstman either introduce us please to her uh, we meet her first in nashville in 1941 how would you describe her at that point in her life
0: well, uh, she was just uh, out of medical school, and she was um, going for her residency. And the reason she was in Vanderbilt is because it was the only place that would take her, and they didn't even mean to take her. You know, she, this was in the um, 30s, and uh, she, she came from a very poor background. Her parents were immigrants and um, from Germany, and they worked in a bar I found this on the census and in, in city directories and you know they she came from nothing and women even well healed women had a hard time getting into medical school and her coming from nothing I don't know how she did it but anyhow there she was at Vanderbilt and uh, she uh, only got that position because she had sent out her cv and it was stellar and the the um, the the guy who did the hiring there called her in and he went nearly, he almost faded. He, he almost killed over when she walked in the door. He, he thought that D Horseman was a man. He did not expect to see Dorothy Millicent horseman. So this, this is, this followed her all along. Um, she had a hard time getting her job at Yale. Uh, she had to convince him, the guy who hired her there that, um, you know, he said, I had hired a woman once before, and she did not work out. She was a disaster. So I'm not hiring women. And she was like, well, would you not hire all men for the next 50 years if a man made a mistake? And she got that job. And how she had to fight every step of the way. So I will say, um, in closing, about her character. She's far from pugnacious. She was known uh, people, I get um, accounts from people who knew her. She was the most kindest, gentlest, sweetest, fun-lovingest <laughs> if that's the word, um, person there was. But she was very determined to get rid of polio. And this woman, um, she just had a very determined streak in her when something needed to be done.
1: Yes, that's, that's uh, one of the really interesting traits about her. She is Unstoppable. I mean, she really seems to have an unquenchable drive to find a cure for polio. What is it that makes her so tenacious in this goal?
0: It's because I think a lot of it is because um, she, her job at Yale, besides to teach, and she actually, um, you know, saw a patient there and was an epidemiologist, but one of her big jobs was to was part of the Yale polio study unit. And this job took her all around the world wherever there was an outbreak. And uh, she was actually the most well-known person to do this. She did this more than anybody. So if there's an outbreak anywhere in the U.S. or in the world, Dorothy Horstman was there. So she was, uh, you know, it was firsthand to her how devastating this disease was and how it, you know, it took children, and it it destroyed families. Um, and you know she she knew its grief and its devastation, probably more than anybody in the world. And I think that just put a fire in her belly, and that's what made her unstoppable
1: and a lot of the work she does, especially in the beginning, is really grunge work. <laughs>
0: Well, she was a woman, and um, she, every step of the way, she had to fight for what she had. And she had a hunch uh, pretty early on um, that polio, the virus, was in the blood. That was not the common thought. All the big names in the field did not think it was in the blood. They didn't know how it went from, they thought you inhaled it, and somehow it, it got into the gut and to the brain or, or maybe it went straight to the brain. They didn't know. Um, anyhow, they, they just didn't know. But Dorothy, um, in her work um, at, with the polio study unit, she took blood samples. And in one sample, she found poliovirus in the blood. And she thought, if, if it's here this one time, it's got to be there. And she was so discouraged because you know all the great minds said, "No, there's no way." and um, she was taken away from her studies, she didn't get the funding. so you know it kind of breaks my heart to think that if she had been a man, perhaps they would have found the cure. it's not really a cure, but the vaccine for um, polio, maybe a decade earlier, um, you know they needed her research, but they they put her off that long, so it's really kind of a shame what what you know them discounting her because she was a woman. The damage that that wreaked.
1: Yes, and you really see it in the book. I mean, she's referred to as Dot. One of my scenes
0: I love in the book is uh, taken from a real picture in um, Time magazine. Um, you know, talking about how she was treated like a secretary. She had just made an announcement that rocked the entire scientific world about her discovery, and at that same meeting, a man um, was given funding, and he he ended up making the announcement at the same time with the same discovery so she'd had the materials and everything everybody knew that it was hers, but they were joint um, honorees at this uh, symposium where she announced her her um, discovery. Anyhow, when the reporters came, this was a big deal, they knew, and the reporters came and they arranged this picture and it looks like she's taking dictation. She's sitting at a desk looking up with a pen in her hand at him as he, you know, holds forth. So even though this is her discovery, um, she's made to look like this, as Bodian is his name, uh, David Bodian, like his secretary. It, it's just how it was all the way down the line for her.
1: Yes, that really comes through in the novel. So one of those great minds is Albert Sabin. Uh Tell us about him. I suspect uh, listeners know more about his achievements and his personality, and the work that they do together. She's, she works quite closely with him, especially at first.
0: Yes, and this is how it was in real life. In fact, I based. Um, I have a letter in the book where she's kind of flirtatious with him um, when they're early on. Um, and that's a real letter. I it's it's actually I use it in the book, and um, there are other letters. Then they, I noticed the letters got more uh, sober after that. I think she realized you um, don't you know act you know, flirtatious with this guy, um, and the, so the subsequent letters through time are about sharing um, vaccine or uh, polio strains and about the work, but they did work hand in hand, and her discovery aided him the most. He needed to know about the the virus traveling through the flood to develop his vaccine. So uh, he was really dependent on her. And later on, when his vaccine was tested in the um, USSR at the time, um, you know, he, he helped her with information. And, you know, he was she he knew it would actually benefit him. This vaccine became the The Sabin vaccine, Sabin oral vaccine, but actually she was the one who um, shepherded it through the the trials there in the um, Soviet Union. 77 million people. She had to do the trial for 77 million people, just one woman, because in the Soviet Union at the time, they weren't really open to Western scientists. So the WHO assigned her because they knew she was the polio expert in the world and Because of that, because they assigned her and she's the one who um, looked the results of this trial of the oral vaccine, because she said, yes, this is safe and effective, uh, the rest of the world, we all got our polio or the oral vaccine. So those sugar cube vaccines that uh, some of us got um, in the early 60s, we got those on Dorothy's say so.
1: Um, Saban is kind of a—he comes across in the novel as a kind of difficult personality. Uh, talk us, talk to us a bit about him.
0: He 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 is difficult. Um, he was sort of charismatic uh, when he wanted to be, and he could be charming when he wanted to be. But he's like, um, I don't. I could write a whole book trying to explore whether geniuses have to be total jerks or not, but he was of that strain. He was a real genius, but he was actually a total jerk. And, uh, my friend's uh, book that will be coming out next year. Yale is uh, publishing it. Yale University press and it's called Albert and a fierce joy. And <laughs> that so describes him. He's so fierce, but you know, he loved his work and thank God for his work. Um, He really was instrumental in uh, licking polio. But he was very, very um, irascible. And he also really steamrolled. um, He tried to steamroll Salk a lot. He tried to steamroll everybody. That was just his character. Very arrogant man.
1: One of the things we realized early on... um... Precisely because none of the scientists at this point in 1940 and the early 40s know how polio was being transmitted is that it's actually um, a bit dangerous to be researching it. Uh, So tell us a little bit about Barbara Johnson, who was working with Sabin and Dorothy uh, early on and what happens to her.
0: Right. Um, There were a few people uh, who actually came into contact with the polio virus during research and develop polio. And one of the saddest examples is Barbara Johnson. She was uh, working with Sabin in his lab and she came in direct contact, you know, her fingers touched some um, polio virus in a tissue and um, from an autopsy. And she, she got the worst uh, kind of case of uh, paralyzation and she um, could no longer work in the lab but uh, she came back and this is a real life story she came back and even uh, you know with her limitations she I mean she was completely paralyzed she still used her brain and was his statistician and so she's a really fierce person in her own right I love Barbara Johnson I had to include her because she took the risk and she was burnt but yet she she still stayed in the fight.
1: Yeah, she's very admirable. Um, I was a little surprised to discover because, uh, like most people, haven't really put a lot of energy into this, but who have benefited from the vaccines, I just always assumed that Jonas Salk, who developed the first vaccine, was highly admired. But in your book, um, at least within the academic community, which, like a lot of academic communities, is simultaneously supportive and contentious, He was not actually the most admired uh, member of these various, among these various people who were researching polio. Why is that, and how would you describe him as a personality? Well,
0: he was um, not the scientist, scientist. Um, He didn't actually uh, win, he wasn't appointed to the different, um, you know, got the scientific honors that most people of his caliber would have gotten. And it's because what he did was to develop a pre-existing vaccine. In fact, one that had been refined by Isabel Morgan, who it really should have been the Isabel Morgan, the Morgan uh, polio vaccine. But she dropped out of the race because she felt it was moving too quickly and she was not comfortable with testing on children. And um, so he took over. There there are several people in the race, but... He got the funding because the thing about Salk is he's very charming and he was very young. So here's this young, toothy, charming fella. Uh, He was on Edward R. Morrow's show. And, and, you know, Jonas Salk was very lovable. Um, And so he was funded by the March of Dimes very readily um, because they could use him for PR, because he was so charming, as opposed to the irascible uh, Sabin. He was very charming, and his vaccine was ready to go. All he did was scale it up. Um, he did, he, you know, did a little tinkering with it. But the, the gripe that Say, Sabin had was, he said, he's just like a a cook in the kitchen. He just used a recipe, and that's where that contempt came from. But I, I will say something in uh, Salk's defense. His his little um, vaccine that Sabin was so contentious, contemptuous of, um, we're actually using that now. The Sabin's uh, vaccine was used um, primarily until I think about the 1990s. And then now um, Salk's vaccine is more appropriate. So we needed both vaccines. I'm not with Saban. I'm, I'm totally getting down on Falk. Um, he, he did make an important contribution that we are using to this day.
1: So one of the issues with writing historical fiction is always um, where history and fiction overlap. Do you try to stick very closely to the facts or did you deviate um, with by introducing other characters and events for the sake of the story?
0: Well, I... I have it, so everything that happened could have happened, and that's really important to me to keep time frames and um, in this case, the science and the discoveries and all that as um, true to to life as I could possibly do them, like to my knowledge. And um, in this case, though i uh, I did add a few characters to make a point if i if I didn't know um, who these characters were in real life. Um, and I'm being kind of nebulous, but what it is, is in the book, I wanted to show how so many made people made contributions. It was not just, you know, these scientists up there doing their thing and everybody else just waiting. The whole world, from children to patients, to doctors, to nurses, to their families, I mean, everybody had a part in it. And so, so some of these um, characters like the secretary to um, Dorothy's office—you um, know—I I wanted them to have a role too, and those those were people that were that tended to be fictitious.
1: So let's talk about some of the um, characters whom I at least thought were fictitious, um, which doesn't mean that I was necessarily right. <laughs> um, so. Um, the Yale team, and I assume most of their colleagues, are conducting research on animals because they don't want to test untested vaccines on uh, humans, especially human children. Uh, and they use rhesus monkeys, at least the Yale team do. Uh, that brings me to Eugene. Uh, he's one of the characters I guess might be fictional, although he must have had a real-life counterpart. What should listeners know about him and his approach to his job?
0: Well. Um... One of the sore points for me uh, about this subject was that there were animals that needed to be used to find, um, like for Dorothy to make her discovery. And then of course, you know, testing for the, for the vaccine, but just in order to find any of their knowledge, they had to use animals at some point. And I almost didn't write the book. When I got to thinking about that, I thought, you know, I'm out because I, I just can't bear that because I'm such an animal lover. And um and then I saw as I was looking into that, being very disgruntled about that, that oh my gosh, the lab handlers, at least at Yale and all the universities that I noted, they only, only used African American men. And I thought that is the only avenue that I could see the African American men had to be part of this research is you know, and handling animals. And both things made me just sad and I was going to give it up but I couldn't because that would be discounting a lot of good that Dorothy and others did and what about the lab handlers themselves what about the good that they did and I thought well what if this lab handler happened to be someone who actually adored animals he's a great animal lover too and this was difficult for him Uh, best he could do was to Uh, understand them to try to get to know the animals and to make them comfortable and, and make, you know, their lives as as good as they could. And, um, and also he was motivated because he's one of these people, like I was talking about that, that are all want to make a contribution because he did, because what if he lost one of his children to polio? And he wanted to do something for polio research and this was it. So I I felt like this this had to have happened and um it it shows gratitude and instead of um, looking away from from this, I I'd like to be thankful to the animals and to the animal handlers for the service, the sacrifice they made for us.
1: I'm with you on the animals. So those were hard sections to read and I'm also You know, just as sexism was entrenched in the 40s in a way that it's not acceptable now, racism was entrenched in the 40s in ways that it's not now. And it's, you know, it's still present, as we can see, but the kind of casual acceptance of racial and sexual discrimination, I think we've gone past that in, in some ways Uh, And Eugene is a a very appealing character, I have to say. Um, He has a wife, uh, Viola or Viola, I'm not sure how she says it, and two boys. Why did you decide to include them in the story and even tell short sections from Viola's point of view?
0: Well, for the very things you just mentioned, that um, I wanted to show, you know, the racism of the time period and how these people, how they could give even with these roadblocks in, in, in front of them. And uh, also, you know, here's um, I wanted to show on a granular level, level, you know, everybody making their contribution. Here's Oakley, or excuse me, his name's Eugene Oakley. Um, Here's Eugene Oakley um, making, you know, in the lab doing this thing. It's very hard for him because he loves the animals and he, but he's doing this for the child that they lost. And I wanted to show his wife, you know, this is what the only thing Avenue opened to her was supporting him. And she she did it wholeheartedly. So I just feel like even small contributions are huge.
1: Albert Saban also has a wife uh, named Sylvia, and I assume she's not a fictional character per se. But I wonder how much information there was about her as a person since he was the great man and she was in those, you know, in the mind of the set of those days, just the little woman. Uh, their relationship as portrayed is very typical of the 40s and 50s. So how would you characterize her and her role, both in the novel and in the effort to conquer polio? Um,
0: well, I, I wanted to show, again, you know, what was behind the great man. Here's this woman who, and, and children who gave everything for him to succeed because it wasn't just him succeeding though. I think sometimes he thought it was, but it wasn't just him. It was all the children of the world, everybody. And, you know, so she made these sacrifices. Her role was to uh, entertain the scientists who, um, visited and, and housed them and, um, to, you know, just do everything to make him look good at her own expense. And, um, I just felt like I—I I got into her, you know, showing her character and her life. But I felt like she was typical, she, of of her era, and it was difficult for women to just, you know, kind of rein in all their own impulses for the, for their husband and their family's betterment. I know from being a mom. I have three kids, and I, my kids are out of the house now. But when they were small, I. I gave everything to them, and I have no regrets about that, but it is hard on a person, and I just think about back then when you, you know, I did have some, I was writing, and I had some ways of, you know, feeling like myself, but a lot of days, gosh, when you're, when you have to totally let yourself, you know, put yourself aside and be someone for others, that's hard, and I wanted to show that through, through her
1: and she's a gifted photographer, actually, although she doesn't end up doing anything with it for precisely the reasons that you just mentioned.
0: Yes, and this, this is uh, true about her.
1: So, another character I suppose to be fictional is one of my favorites, uh, Arnie Holm. Uh, so, is he fictional? And either way, give us a sketch of his character and his role in the novel.
0: Um, well, Arna is, uh, he is fictitious, I will admit. Um, I don't know who Dorothy's, um, you know, I don't know about her love life. I do know this, and this is why I had to include him. She made a point of saying how women can't have everything. And in order for her to pursue this very difficult goal, she had to let, you know, her personal life go, And, um, Actually, and I think we've gone a lot past that, but I think women still to this day, even from a young age, you're conscious of, you know, the proportions that you're going to allow things to be. It's not just so easy. Um, And maybe, you know, men feel more of that now. Back in, um, you know, Sabin's day, there's no thinking about it. Your family, your wife takes care of your family and everything, and you go do what you've got to do. But Dorothy didn't have that, and she... I felt like she must have really given up a great love. By the way, she talked, you know, so regretfully about not being able to have everything. So I gave her a great love and I, I don't want to say too much about him other than, um, the the things that he was involved in, like the white buses, anybody who wants to Google the white buses, um, in Scandinavia in world war two, it's a real thing. And also, um, that there it is a real story about uh, how this is band of school teachers um, got together to help the um, Danish Jews to evacuate when Germany was um, occupying Denmark uh, they everybody was safely evacuated um, and it' just a bunch of uh, local people organizing and uh, Using these little boats, you know, whatever little boat they didn't want to use anything big. People row boats and rowed them over to Sweden, you know, in that sound between Denmark and and Sweden. So um, I have him involved in that and um, the white buses, and he, he's my dream guy. So what you see there is my dream guy. <laughs> enough.
1: He's lovely. I was glad he was included. He really adds an element to the novel um, that would be missing if Dorothy were wholly focused on her work. But one of the things, I mean, we've talked about her tenacity and her insistence that she's going to stick with this and find a cure, but it's impressive to think about how long this took i mean the novel opens in 1940 polio was already a thing although it hasn't been a thing for a while and it's when we when it opens it's sort of like covid in 2020 right i mean people are just terrified and as you mentioned the the first big clinical trials of the sabin vaccine took place in the ussr because they were the only place that could just order people to take the vaccine and were willing to do so in the early 1960s. So that's more than 20 years. And she, you know, she waves a little bit in response to Arna, but um, she really doesn't waver very much. How does she keep going, you know, year after year after year? I think it goes back to her working
0: with the uh, polio study unit and seeing firsthand how it devastated people. And, you know, she became, after... um, after this polio discovery was made, she became a pediatrician. She just, um, she still did research. In fact, she went on to research um, and was successful in being part of the um, rubella vaccination. So she, or vaccine. So um, she just, she loved children and she would just do whatever it took to solve a problem. So, you know, to to save them, giving up whatever she had to give up to save them.
1: What would you like people to take away from the woman with the cure? How
0: we are all connected. Um, You know, before the finding the vaccine, as I had mentioned, you know, it was everybody from children sending in their dimes to the person doing the research and Everything in between. I mean, everything. Everybody was hands on in that fight, and without a, you know, a link, things fall apart. And um, I, I just I saw that in other ways. I talk about that in the story, but it astounded me as I was writing the book. I didn't realize that's what I was writing about, but it really is about how we are so deeply connected, and if we only realized that, I think we'd be kinder. To each other.
1: Well, that's a wonderful takeaway. Um, I know because we were chatting just before we started the interview that you are working on something new. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: I wish I could. I can't just yet. It's it's actually not under contract. Um, I have I'm in the early stages of a book, and I can't wait to announce it because it, it's so fun. I'm just loving it. But um,
1: yeah, and I hope it will be out next fall,
0: not this coming fall, but the following fall. But you have to stay tuned on that one.
1: Okay, is it still historical fiction or something else?: Oh yes.
0: Yes, because
1: I love history, and I love seeing
0: how it, how we're living history and how we think it's past. They always, what is the expression I it? I don't know what it is about history being past, but anyhow, um, I just feel like we're connected, talk about connections. We are connected to time, to people in the past and events. There's no escaping it. We just are connected. And so anytime I can uh, shed the light on a little corner of history that's unknown, I I get a lot of pleasure out of that.
1: Well, I will look forward to finding out about your next project. And thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Lynn. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I have enjoyed this, too. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Lynn Cullen about The Woman with the Cure. Find out more about her at lynncullen.com. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and, in general, discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.